My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds that keep covering up the sun. On this episode of Just a Mom, I have a friend, Sherry, with me today. Sherry, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. And I really appreciate you taking the time and being willing to share your journey as a parent of a child who has struggled with some mental health issues. Um, So maybe we'll just get started by you telling me a little bit about your family. Okay. Um... Well, uh, there's four of us, and I have a son who is a sophomore and studying. He's studying online right now. He was, and then my daughter is a senior in high school. Okay. And you're married? I am married. Okay. And yes, well, four of us live together. All right. And you've been married for? Oh, my goodness. Um, 20, 2001. So where are we now? Wow. September. So 21 yeah. years. 21 years. Yes. I've lost count. Yes. Wow. Thank you. 21 ble- wedded bliss years. Yes, so. exactly. Well, very good. Why don't you just get us going by telling us how your journey as a parent with a child with a mental health crisis started? Okay. Um, Well, I would say with my daughter, it kind of started creeping in in smaller ways and and little things, but really started being noticeable in middle school. There were um, several different things that happened, and we don't need to get into all the detail, but um, a couple things that were a little bit traumatic and a couple things that were just... um, very very stressful and middle school was just middle school Mm -hmm. and it was some of it was typical middle school and some of it was a little beyond that Um, and really um, we started having issues with it she didn't she loved she was always an excellent student very bright um, did really well in school her whole life and enjoyed school and then started missing school and so that was the first thing that I noticed and then she was always really tired and she's always kind of had a little bit of issues with sleep Um, and so that kind of played into us starting to notice you know the anxiety issues starting to creep up and that's really the anxiety was really more of the issue that she dealt with the most okay and that was in you said middle school so like beginning middle end yeah really started happening more probably around seventh eighth grade Um, And then got, kind of came to a head in eighth grade, I'd say. Okay. Tell us how that played out when you say it came to a head. Um, Well, we started, she started missing a lot of school. She had missed some school at the end of seventh grade um, for, she had had a concussion and had some time off and then had a little bit of trouble re-engaging with um, not feeling well and still getting headaches and sort of that slow um, re-engagement was very close to the end of the year. And so the school year in eighth grade started off well. Um, And then as we got further in, I just noticed there was a lot of stress going on and she would have days that she just couldn't get up and just couldn't go in or would go in late. Um, Mornings were always tough. Getting going in the morning was always a tough thing for her. And what was it about school that you think she didn't want, why she didn't want to go to school? I think some of it was some of the social stuff going on. And there was, there were issues with, um, there was one class in particular, a teacher, um, you know, throughout the years, there might be a teacher here and there that would kind of just not, not, she didn't click as well or Mm -hmm. didn't, didn't really work as well in that, with that particular teacher. And there was one teacher that, um, I think she had some challenges with, um, mm-hmm. and that was um, that was a big part of some of the stress, I think, and, you know, just it not being an environment that she felt, I don't know if safe is the right word, but comfortable for mm-hmm. sure, and, and it just, I think she felt like she was sort of tense in, in those situations. Mm-hmm. So, And other than sleeping a lot, what were some of the other 
physical manifestations that you saw yeah. in regards to her anxiety? Yeah, I mean, they'd manifest with the typical headaches, stomach aches, not feeling well, kind of what you always hear about anxiety with mm-hmm. kids. We started seeing and hearing some of that. Um, and then other things started happening, and I think this was about eighth grade also. Um, she never liked getting shots. No one did, but she started having some real phobias around needles and shots and then um, certain other things like that. That's the one that stands out the most to me um, to where we missed a couple of shots and had to go back later and mm. get them, and it was pretty traumatic for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and so things like that that were maybe never comfortable that started becoming real problems and then um, trying to remember kind of, I guess I'd just say sort of anxiety attacks that would be like she'd get very, very anxious and then she just would crash. And she actually described it to me and I've later read more about it that it almost felt like when you get a really bad headache or a migraine and then you start feeling better but you're just wiped out afterwards. And as she got older, she kind of was able to explain that feeling to me Mm -hmm. like that like that was the post if you have a full-on anxiety attack or a panic attack afterwards you're just so wiped out you can't function and all you can do is sleep Um, and so some of that she wasn't having panic attacks at that point although those did develop later for a short time we had issues with panic attacks too and that happened later so when this first started showing up and middle school eighth grade were you aware at that time that this was anxiety or did you think that she had some other physical um, ailments how did you go about exploring that what help did you seek if any? yeah that's a good question we did kind of go through the list and watch the physical um, and kind of went to the doctor for some of those things that were popping up physically and nothing was really major was coming of that And then, you know, I obviously, I'm a big reader and I, you know, Google everything, which is good and bad. Um, (laughs) But I realized at that point, this is classic anxiety symptoms. And I knew that there was a lot of stress and anxiety happening with some situations um, that she was in. Um, And I, I really, at that point, was thinking, gee, I wish we had another option even for school because I felt like school was the anxiety, biggest anxiety trigger at that point. And I knew she loved and was a good student and I didn't want school to become such a trigger. Mm. Um, And that's the point that we started thinking about the high school and Mm -hmm. what might, I didn't feel like at that point we could really, I think we were um, pretty close to the holidays in the fall. Um, and, And I tried at that point, I'm like, let's go talk to someone. I tried to get her to talk to someone. And at that point she was not open to that. And we tried several times and she just didn't want to do it. And to the point where she might sort of agree and then we get to the day, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And so um, it was a little bit of that, you know, just fix it. I just want to fix it. It wasn't kind of figuring out, we didn't really understand the whole anxiety thing at that point. We just knew kind of, I think we've identified what the issue is, but now what do we do? So that's sort of where we were at that point. And you talk about that she was missing a lot of school. Mm -hmm. How did that impact her, um, you? That was the worst part. That, I think, built the anxiety to where it became a huge trigger for both of us. Um, we, We actually got to the point, I can't remember what part of the year it was. I think it was pretty far into the second semester where she had missed enough school that we got the letter from the school that I guess all the public schools legally have to send out if you've missed too much school that's like threatening legal action. And I just felt awful. I mean, that's when I started really having trouble because up to that point, you know, I felt like, well, I guess this is on me to fix this. And I use fix in air quotes Mm -hmm. because you can't fix it. Um, but I was still trying, and I was I was talking to people um, to try to get help because I couldn't get her to go. But I'm like, well, maybe as a parent, I can do something. What can I do to help? So I was taking on a lot of the guilt, a lot of the anxiety, and it got to the point when those let that letter came that I, you know, I started sort of handing it back to her, which amped up her anxiety. And I know, I think I I knew at the time it wasn't the way to handle it. 
but I felt like I didn't have any other way to handle it. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, my husband and I would talk about it and we were both of the mindset. Like if I just needed to vent, he would hear it and go try to fix it. And then I was trying to fix it and so much was coming at her. So it became where it wasn't just at school that the anxiety was triggering. We were all over her at home. You got to get up. You got to go to school. You can't miss school. And I really didn't know what our options were at that point. So I didn't have, I did felt like I didn't have the ability or the capability to back off and recognize there's, there's other paths. Even the school saying this, you know, I was, it's the rules, you know, and you're trying mm-hmm. to follow the rules. Yep. And I needed to break those rules and not have it be bad. And I think mm. that was part of the challenge for her, too. Um, she was always a good student. Mm-hmm. She always did everything right. She always excelled. Everything was, yes, mm-hmm. perfection. You know, everything was rule follower. And she was very, had very high standards for herself. And so when she started getting this negative feedback about all her absences, that made it worse it was a Mm -hmm. cyclical thing and that feedback loop made her feel bad and bad about herself and dragged her further down and i think that whole inability of the school to like support us in the way that we really needed to um and i i you know i know that there were our counselor was fantastic and probably i can't say enough good things about how much she did to help Um, And a lot of the teachers were good, too. There were a couple, one in particular, that did not help the situation. And I felt like the administration kind of just was following the rules. And, And I get it. There's not a lot of flexibility sometimes. But I think that's where I really was frustrated and felt like the rules need to change a little here. There needs to be some understanding of what this issue is. And I didn't feel like we got that back then. So when you say legal action, like what does this letter say? I don't, you because know, I'm I was looking curious. for that. I was, I was, I'm so sorry I didn't dig it out. Okay. And I, I know I ran across it when I was cleaning my office. And I'll be honest, I don't mm-hmm. know if I kept it or where I put it because it's so, it's still so triggering for me. I bet it basically was like a truancy letter, and it basically said, um, "Here's where you are. Here's the legal number of days that you know the school allows, and if you exceed this further." Um, we will be in a position that we either have to or the next step is going to be, I can't remember exactly how it was worded, um, legal, like basically they take you to court because your kids are truant, you know. and They so take then, you as parents Yeah, the court. parents. Oh boy, so then that's, and then you're like, wait a minute. I'm a bad mom, exactly. I'm a failure. Right. Which we all think right. when we have a child struggling anyway right oh right. wow yes and when I talked to the principal about the situation the comment back was well this should be helpful and I said in what way is this helpful and he said well this is a way to incent your child you know to understand how serious this is and I'm like her understanding of how serious this is is totally not the issue that we have and I just think it's, I think at that time it was an education thing, and I think he was completely oblivious mm. to um, to the issue and, and what it was and how it's, what the situation was. I think a lot of people were. I, you know, I try not to blame anyone. I just think it's an education thing, and we've come a long way in the last five years. True. But at that point, it was not something that was like, there was a plan for it or there was an acceptance of it. Um you know, and to be fair to our educators, and my daughter's a teacher, so yes. uh, to be fair, I don't think they have any or maybe very few classes or, you know, things that they're learning about how to handle mental health crises, especially. And that probably is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I should talk to somebody, get somebody on here who would be able to answer that question, like how how are school districts dealing with this massive mental health crisis? Because that the way that yours was handled was obviously not helpful to anyone involved. Right. Right. And, and I say that, and I don't want to throw the school under the bus because they're, they also, um, in particular, our counselor got us through this Mm. and was so helpful and went above and beyond on everything. And several of, of her teachers were also extremely supportive and understanding. 
Um, so it's not, I do believe, I don't think it was anyone's intention sure. to have that be the outcome. It's just, this is the process and we're going by the book of what the process is. Mm. And I think the book needs to change. Mm. Does anyone really get in trouble for truancy anymore? I didn't even I mean, know that was a thing. Still. That seems like something when I was a kid, I heard of kids dropping out of school and being truant. Mm-hmm. But you know, that was many, many years ago. <laughs> and I don't think that that is why most kids miss school these days. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think there's a bigger, a better understanding of it. I know they've come a long way and yeah. the schools are coming a long way. And there are no easy answers. So I'm not, I'm really not trying to, you know, throw the school under the bus by any stretch because I didn't know what to do. Right. So I didn't even really know what kind of help they could give me that would be helpful. But all I knew was that that didn't help me. Yep. (laughs) That made it harder for me to do what I needed for my daughter, which I was still trying to figure out what that was. Right. Well, and to your point of you're not throwing the school under the bus by any stretch of the imagination. So many kids, the first person they contact is someone at school if they're struggling with a mental health issue. Mm -hmm. And that was the case for Will. Mm -hmm. He emailed his eighth grade counselor and she was fabulous. And so there, so many educators and, and they're put in these situations that again, they were not necessarily trained um, to handle or deal with. And I know districts are doing a lot more education in terms of mental health but you know this was one that that just um was a swing and a miss for sure yeah in your situation yeah and that that made me feel like um I needed to really consider whether public school was going to be the most supportive place or whether we needed to go someplace that maybe had a little better either, I don't know if the word is flexibility or understanding or um, openness to working with situations that may not be by the book all the Mm -hmm. time, um, which led us to private school. Yeah. Yeah. So then you did start that journey. Yes. And that, and I think um, a smaller environment helped as well. And so we just went for a smaller private school. So that's where she started high school. Yes. How did the transition, um, in terms of her anxiety, did that level up at all because she was nervous about starting a new school with new people? You know, that's an interesting one, too, because um, she was thrilled. She, When she shadowed at this school, she came home. She's like, wow. I could just see her whole demeanor was relaxed. She's like, I could tell it was the right environment for her, and she really wanted to do this. And so she was very excited to start. She started ninth grade and kind of overcommitted um, as far as activities. And when we made the hard decision to drop one of the activities, um, that's when things triggered again because she was mm. doing great, but she was felt this anxiety and had attributed it to always being in an environment that wasn't helpful. Or at this point, I think I've overcommitted. We need to kind of pull back. And when we did she realized that, wait a minute, I'm still feeling a little bit of anxiety. Why am I still feeling this way? And that's the point at which um, she was more willing to actually go and talk to somebody and get help because she's like, I realize now that there were some situational environmental factors and maybe that's influenced why I'm more anxious in general. But I still feel anxiety and removing me from one situation to another does not change who I am. And so I think um, to me, one of the biggest relief reliefs I felt was when she kind of came to me with that recognition and said, Hey, I think, I think I'm ready to, to try to figure something more out here because I'm still feeling not great. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I should be feeling great and I'm not feeling great. Mm-hmm. And so um, to me, that was a huge relief mm-hmm. because then it, and then it was acknowledgement that, okay, there was some ownership taking on, taken on on her part and there was a desire to do something different and make a change and an openness to talking to somebody. Which or she hadn't had some, before. Which she, she yes, we hadn't really, we tried. We did try. Right, but she um, wasn't willing. She hadn't really clicked with anybody. Said. And we mm-hmm. tried a couple people and she didn't really click. And um, I'm trying to remember. 
Um, I think that's about the time in the fall that we went back to the pediatrician, talked to them and said, what do you recommend? And, and they were the ones that said, well, you know, you can try medication. And I had always been, I don't want to try medication. I don't, you know, we don't need that. I was always really nervous about all of that. Um, but that's when that, you know, we can kind of combine those two things. And, and then I found somebody that she finally clicked with and that did for quite a while help improve things. It wasn't a straight path, but. And rarely it is. How many people did you cycle through? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because I think this is important for people to hear. There were at least six, um, that I had made appointments with probably maybe six or seven in that time frame. Probably there were, there were at least three or four that she actually talked to or went to once. Um, and said, I don't feel like this is the right fit for me. And then I finally found somebody that she liked and she went to for a while. Um, and it was at a time that things had kind of come to a head. It was the first time she had a panic attack um, that was a full-blown panic attack. And it kind of scared both of us a little bit. Um, I wasn't really familiar with panic attacks. And so once I recognized what that was, I I thought, I don't want this to become a disorder. You know, a panic attack is one thing, but if you start having them repeatedly all the time, it can turn into a disorder. And so um, I was like any, I was just kind of desperate at that point to find anybody that she would click with enough. So the person we found was not an expert in adolescent psychology, um, really dealt more with adults, but, but related well to her and really did help her kind of understand the science behind it and the brain, like what happens to your brain when you are anxious or have anxiety and, you know, why panic attacks happen. And and that resonated. The science behind it all really was um, helpful for her to understand, to be more accepting of, oh, okay, I see why that happens. And that mm-hmm. is a normal process for people. And it's a, you know, it's something that we evolved to for reasons, um, but it's not serving me well and not helping me now. And so I get why I need to work on that. So that was a great stepping stone. Um, and this was her. about a year after her anxiety was really showing right. up. Right. right. I mean, for okay. about a year, I'd been trying okay. to figure out who to who to see, who to talk to. We hadn't started meds right away. Right. Um but okay. it was about a year later, yeah, before we found someone that really clicked. Let's go back to the panic attack, the mm-hmm. initial panic attack, because I know that that's a term that we, I'm saying we, meaning everybody, we use, but I'm not sure it's always used appropriately mm-hmm. or um, in the right situations. Um, t- can you talk a little bit about what the panic attack was like and how you knew that, oh my gosh, this is what's happening and we really got to right. get some help here? Right. Yeah. The first one was, it was in a social situation, which normally would not have triggered anything, although it was a new situation, a new group of people and, and probably not the type of situation that she's normally comfortable in, but she's very, was always very social, never really got phased, flustered by any of that. We get up and still does get up in front of a group and talk, has no problem with that ever. So that was, I was very surprised that, that being in a social, a particular social situation triggered this. So I knew that, that there was more going on. And then the only other time I really recall full-on panic attacks, that kind of, that happened once and we talked about it and she started seeing someone and it really didn't happen for a little while more. And then there was a phase where she started having them frequently when she couldn't sleep. And mm. so it would get to be one, two, three in the morning. She'd be very amped up, stressed out. Nighttime was always the time the anxiety amped up. And we'd, um, we'd, go you know we'd be like okay good night whatever and I'd kind of try to stay away and notice that the light's still on and you know kind of watch and then I'd go to bed and then it would get to be one two three in the morning and it would be the middle of the night that she'd wake up and have a panic attack Mm. and so I don't know some of the times she said I couldn't sleep or some of the times she said I woke up and couldn't go back to sleep and then got panicky because she knew that she was going to be tired in the morning and she mm-hmm. knew she didn't want to miss school. And she knew she got panicky about the panic attack and how it would 
And then she's like, I don't want to get in trouble if I miss school. And then, and then there were a couple times where like literally we get to school and she was really exhausted because she'd been up Mm -hmm. and she'd have a panic attack and couldn't go into school at a school that she loved and wanted to be at. And that's when I was like, I don't, what is going on? Like, and she didn't understand. Neither of us understood what was going on. And that's when I think it really um, came to a head with, okay, we got to get the right person and we we need to you know nip this in the bud mm-hmm. and kind of address it and figure out what is going on here and so what did that look like when she got to school and you you're driving her to school and mm-hmm. she has a panic attack like mm-hmm. what were the what did you observe yes it would she got real quiet and then it would be breathing like she kind of stopped breathing or she'd have like hyperventilate and just kind of le- just got to the point that she wasn't really um, I, you know, I use the medical, her prefrontal cortex wasn't tuned in. It was mm-hmm. like, it was gone. It was the panic moment. And, and it triggered, it, it, it would trigger at times that I didn't expect it. Like at first that caught me way off guard. Cause I knew she liked the school and she mm-hmm. wanted to be there. Um, and so it was almost like a physiological reaction that was just triggered and it, I think over time, I think part of it had to do with some of the things that had happened in middle school where she was like, I'm going to get in trouble. If I can't walk in there, what if, what if, what if, what if I have a pain, you know, what if this happens? And, and she would get so scared about the what ifs that she had trouble walking through the scenario to actually experience and realize <clears throat> the worst case is not that bad. Mm-hmm. And, um, there was some back and forth getting through that. The getting the right um, counselor or the right you know person to talk to really helped a lot with that. Um, again, she had a counselor at school at this time who was phenomenal. Um, I will give every bit of credit to her for working, you know, being flexible, working with her, recognizing what was going on, and bending over backwards to try to help us, you know, and help her. Um, succeed in the situation. And over time, I think in talking through it and really understanding physiologically what was going on, and then understanding that um, the trigger, like the trigger was probably had more to do with some of the stuff that had happened in the past and the concern over, you know, I'm not supposed to be a bad kid. I'm I'm going to get in trouble. I don't want to get in trouble. You know, I want to, I want to leave this all behind me. And then the panic of what if I can't leave it behind me and realizing that it kind of comes with you created some of that. And it basically paralyzed her. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. And then what you're saying for, yeah, she, she would be like, I'm going to be late. I can't go in. And then, and then we'd, some days we'd be, she'd be able to take a few breaths, go in. And usually if she went in, she was okay most days. But if it, if it, amped up to a full-blown attack, um, it kind of became, I think like you and I were talking about earlier, um, the panic physically takes so much out of you that it's like she had run a marathon and was just Mm. completely both physically and mentally and emotionally so drained that she could not even think Mm -hmm. or function. And so we'd just be like, okay, let's take a minute. And sometimes we, you know, she'd be able to recover from that and get in but usually she'd need to take a nap Mm -hmm. to to kind of just reset that's a really good analogy though they with the marathon like running a marathon because personally I've never had a panic attack so Mm -hmm. I don't know what that feels like so that that helps me understand what a person might feel like and I'm sure I don't know this because again I'm not a therapist I'm not a counselor a doctor I'm just a Mm -hmm. mom but my guess is that panic attacks probably manifest in different ways with different people. I, I don't know. Um, I would think so. I'm, again, yeah. just a mom, and I've seen what happened with my daughter. Mm-hmm. And and even when she, like, especially at night, during the school day, I could kind of, if it happened in the morning, I'd be like, okay, I know what's going on. We need, sometimes we just take a minute, and she could go, you know, we go to a coffee shop and sit for a little bit, mm-hmm. and she'd go in a little bit later, and mm-hmm. things would be okay. Um, but... I think the thing that was hard is the middle of the night. And mm. what I noticed was it was the chicken and the egg. All of this. And I, I for a while I tried to see a sleep counselor because I could tell she was not resting. Her brain never rested. And it was just continuously. If you think about – here's another analogy. If you think about like if you've ever pulled an all-nighter 
and then somebody the next day puts a lot of stress or pressure on you, you have very low tolerance for that and you snap and you're irritable and you do and say things that you don't want to be doing and saying. And sometimes you just sort of lose it. And, And I think that was a big part of this. So I was at that point thinking, well, maybe this is more of a sleep thing. I think it was both. Mm-hmm. I think they were feeding into each other and causing more concern. Both um, But interestingly, when we um, finally figured out like what was going on and we were able to get um, on medication that was more effective for her and she was able to find somebody to talk to that she felt comfortable with, it did seem to help and she and knock wood i haven't seen a panic attack in a couple years wow it's that was i feel like that situation was just something that she needed to work through and she still has anxiety and i can even now distinguish between she's feeling anxious because all these things are going on she's having an anxiety attack which there haven't been a lot of those because she's got more tools now that she uses to she can feel when it's coming on and she has all these tools in her toolbox that she's learned of things to do or things that she needs if she's starting to feel that coming on. Um, sometimes I think it still takes over, but but she's much better at bouncing back. And I, I want to sit there for a second on what you just said about tools in the toolbox, mm-hmm. because I know that's language we have used um, with Will and how important that is, you know, with a mental illness to not only see a physician for a medical diagnosis and medication Mm -hmm. if needed, but also a therapist, a counselor, Mm -hmm. someone to, like you said, that you trust, that the child trusts, can talk to and then get these tools because once they have tools in their toolbox, now it doesn't make it perfect. It mm-hmm. doesn't make it go away. Right. But there are times she can thwart, is what I'm hearing you say. There are times she can thwart an attack based on using those tools that she has learned in conjunction with the medication that she's on. Is that what I hear um, you say? Yeah. I mean, I would say so. She now will say to me, usually, I'm feeling very anxious and this is why. And when she labels it like that, like she used to deny the anxiety back in eighth grade. Not, mm-hmm. I mean, now she's like, yes, I have anxiety. I get anxious sometimes and I have anxiety and I'm feeling anxious. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to go work out. I'm going to, I'm going to, whatever it is that mm-hmm. she needs, I'm going to just sit for a minute and chill and watch Netflix. And she knows what works for her now. Um, and sometimes it's a, I'm going to take a nap because mm-hmm. I'm just wiped out mm-hmm. and I need to decompress before I try to start tackling this mound of stuff that feels overwhelming right now. And as a parent, that's got to almost feel counterintuitive, you know, a little bit where you're like, oh my gosh, there's so, she has so much to do, but now she's going to go take a nap. So yes, talk about and, that. and there's varying levels of naps. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, generally, when she says that, I mean, she'll come home from school and often now takes naps. Um, and, and then we'll get up and, um, go to dance sometimes or do whatever she needs to do. And then sometimes not start her homework till like eight o'clock at night and she'll be up till midnight or one. But I know if she's had a two hour nap or a three hour nap, it's okay if like I, she knows how her body functions now and how much sleep she needs. So I used to be, get really stressed out if she was up till 12 or 1 and I'd get on her and that mm. would add to the stress and it just created this big cycle. Now it's like, okay, she did just take a nap and, you know, or it's it's Friday if she doesn't get enough sleep or Thursday, if she doesn't get enough sleep tonight, she'll sleep in over the weekend and it'll be okay. Like I can kind of keep myself in check so I don't feed it mm-hmm. because I think I used to be... And she would say, sometimes I could be a little bit overbearing and controlling because I was always trying to fix things. And so I've been able to recognize, and I've made a real effort this year with her being a senior to say, you know what? Um, she she sometimes used to feel like I didn't, she'd use the word trust a lot, but I think I would say maybe have faith that she was going to do things that were helpful versus harming, you know, making it better versus making it worse. And now... I'm much more comfortable that she knows 
the things that help her and the things that don't. And I'm much more trusting that she's at a point in her maturity that she knows how to use those and what she needs. And I'm better at saying, how can I help? And listening where I used to be more like, well, here's an idea. And she doesn't always want an idea. So I have to make sure she's asking for the idea and not because as an adult, I wouldn't want somebody saying, this is what you need to do if all I wanted to do was vent or have somebody listen to me. Mm. And so I know that I overstepped that sometimes when she was younger because it was those transitional younger years. And so that's helped too. That is very convicting to me personally because I know I I did that a lot with all three of my kids in mm -hmm. different ways where, you know, I just tried to fix things. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's a really uh, good word for any parent especially these younger parents who are listening. We don't always have to try to fix everything for our kids, would you say? Oh, yeah. And I know I'm, I like to be in control. I know Me that too. about myself. And, and um, I've learned a lot in this parenting journey, I mm. guess, in terms of um, not from the books, but mm -hmm. just from the experiences. And there's not a one size fits all, but there are things you can do to recognize what your child needs and and try to try to figure it out somewhat. Did you personally seek um, any kind of professional help going through this journey? Yes. Um, my husband and I went and talked to someone, especially at the beginning when she didn't want to talk to anyone about, um, I had a friend that had been through this and recommended someone. And so we went and talked to um, a counselor about like, how to handle it because a lot of times in the beginning and I heard you ask this in other podcasts about like how it affected your relationship mm -hmm. in the beginning we um we were always on the same page as far as the end goal we weren't always in sync with how do we get there and we were both a little bit reactive in retrospect now looking back at the time we didn't know sure. what else to do but looking back, I can see where, you know, us both coming at her when she's in that I just need to rest place can make things worse and not better. And so I think some of that – and then if we didn't communicate with each other, I'd be like, I just checked on her. No, I just checked on her. I'm like, well, no wonder she's stressed out. Yeah, we're both we're all both over her. her. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of it is – getting on the same page with your spouse about not just because, like I said, we were always very on the same page with um, how we wanted to help. We just, I, that we wanted to help, I mm -hmm. should say, not how. We didn't always know how. And, and we, um, I think both in the beginning just wanted to fix it. And I was actually talking to my husband about this this morning and he, we both agreed that when you talk about anxiety or, you know, any, mental health challenge, um, a lot of times in the beginning, you feel like you want to just fix it. And it's not a heart attack. It's not something you go to the hospital, you have the surgery, you change your diet, and you're good. It's more like a diabetic diabetes. Yes. And it's a condition. And you yep. just know that my genetic makeup or my, my, my predisposition is I tend to be a little bit anxious. And so here's how I manage that so it doesn't turn into a full-blown issue. Mm -hmm. And that that I can manage this propensity and have the tools to manage it and have, you know, whatever that looks like for each individual. For some people, it might be going to a counselor every week. For some people, it might be medication, could be a combination, could be as simple as the exercise side, the diet side, the sleep side, all of that comes together. And I think learning to manage the condition is extremely helpful. And one of the things I wanted to mention is through this process, one of the turning points for us was um, we had someone recommend a nurse practitioner who was a psychiatric nurse practitioner that had gone through this herself with her own kids. And that's what prompted her to change her nursing focus and go back and get a psychiatric concentration or degree or whatever you do for that. Um and she was the one that in, that insisted on doing genetic testing. And we learned through that that um, some of the genetic predisposition and and how the genes are set up, like, causes the some of the enzymes. Like, she actually produces less dopamine, less, um, less of the feel-good hormones. And 
has an issue with absorption. And so there literally was a supplement that she put her on immediately that made a huge difference. It's a prescription supplement. It doesn't work for everybody, but because she was reduced in these areas and her other, this actually looked at the genome, I guess is the word, Mm -hmm. makeup, and said, you know, these particular medications are counterindicated. They won't work well. You have a higher propensity of having side effects. And, you know, because you have this um, aspect of this particular gene, and I'm not a biologist or a genetic expert, so I'm not being technical. I'm kind of layman's terms. But it's allowing us to see, okay, these medications are not going to probably work as well as this set over here. So we literally made medication changes and added supplements that have helped in so much. I can't even, like, that was a huge aha. And it wow. was also a turning point for her in realizing, wow. So I actually produce less, um, what's the other one? Serotonin. Serotonin. Serotonin, melatonin, and dopamine. And I was like, well, no wonder she, she can't, can't sleep. sleep. <laughs> and no wonder. And so we switched, we added the supplement, a couple supplements, and then we switched medications. So that was more effective. And it was a huge improvement. Wow. Huge improvement. And how did you find this, the psychiatric nurse practitioner? Was, how did you know to go yeah, looking for this? Yeah, it was actually um, somebody that through the school, the counselor had said, you know, I don't want to recommend anybody, but I know some people have had success with this particular person. Okay. And so... Just um, another nugget for parents to think yes, about. <laughs> yes. And I, I would... I, I mean, I know that there's not a lot... Even friends... I have a friend that's a... Um, uh, PA mm-hmm. that has a kid that has some of these, you know, anxiety and some of the, some of these issues as well. And she's gone down a lot of paths and she and I were talking and she's like, you know, I thought about doing that, but I've never really pushed and no one's ever really recommended it. I'm going to push. And she did it. She got the genetic testing done and realized it. She said it was really helpful and they made a change also that was helpful. So I do think while there may not be a blood test per se, this was literally a cheek swab Mm -hmm. and they send it off and they do, there's different companies that do it. Some, you know, and she had a very specific, I want to do a full panel and I want to use this company because I think they're the best ones. Um, But it came back and gave us real solid information to the point where she's like, well, based on what I'm seeing here, I bet you're having X, Y, Z issue. Like we met with her once. She did the cheek swab, had a quick conversation. We came back and she's like, I'm not going to do anything, make any changes until I get this information. She got the information. She said, so I'm just going to tell you what I'm seeing here. And she went through the whole thing. And I could see, you know, my (laughs) daughter went from arms crossed, kind of closed off to like, holy cow, she Mm. really, this, this is hitting home. Like this makes sense to me. And it was probably validating to her too. Like, oh, this isn't, and I'm using air quotes, all in my head. You know, there's, there are biological, physiological reasons, which is the case with mental illness. And, you know, I want to also go back to your point of being a chronic health condition. And I say that about Will all the time. He has a chronic health condition that needs continual monitoring and -hmm. adjusting. And you don't know what that's going to look like over time. And, and I think that having that knowledge as a parent is Mm -hmm. so important. Uh, It's all uh, freeing in a way, because I feel like it, it helps me as a parent to know that, okay, this isn't a one and done. And I don't need to be all like worried about quote unquote fixing him because that's not going to happen. This is a chronic health condition. And I think it just helps us as society to understand that as well. And I I feel like we're really behind on that. I mean, I know that's only been a somewhat recent revelation for me and we're five and a half years into this. Yeah. I mean, about about you. I, I don't know. I understand why people don't get it because it took me such a long time to get it and I was living it. And you're a really smart woman. I mean, I want to be clear about that. You're like very (laughs) smart. You read a lot. You're you're very well educated. And so just saying for those of us just average people like me to understand. (laughs) No, no. I mean, it's hard. This is hard stuff. And there's not a lot out there. And what's out there is changing. Like, I would love to see I right before I came over here, I was just poking around online. And, you know, having kids college age, of course, I hate 
even throwing this out there, but the statistics are terrifying for college-age kids with right. the mental health situation. But I think everyone knows that. I yes. mean, the statistics I've seen have gone from like 30 to f- 20 to 30 percent to now it's like 60 to 70 yep. to 80 percent. Depending on what you read. Have yep. had incapacitating, like, I mean, when you read it, it's not just like, oh, I felt anxious before my test. It's overwhelming anxiety to the point where I could not function. Mm-hmm. Over 60% of college kids go through this. So it's situational. It's a condition. It's also something that can be managed to where it doesn't become, um, a, I don't want to say it doesn't become a problem. It, it can be managed, I guess. Yeah, it can, it be, can be managed. It can be, you, I mean, it's not a, it's not like, oh, you've got a heart condition and you've got, you know, or you've got cancer and you've got six months to live. It's not that at all. And I think I go back to the tools in the toolbox, Mm -hmm. having people be more open and understanding of it. Because one of the tools in the toolbox is the support system around Mm. you. And I think one of the reasons college kids struggle is college campuses are still behind in this. Mm -hmm. And the high schools are starting to come forward and get further along. But the colleges are like, that's just way beyond, you know, it's, it's, they can't they don't can't afford to have all these therapists on or can't get them because they're just there's, there's a, a shortage of. and a lack mm-hmm. of and and so i think a lot of it is um a lot of colleges are looking now i think at putting those supports in place but that's one of the big things that as a parent of a senior i'm looking for looking at concerned about absolutely yeah. and i actually just interviewed um the dean of students at rockhurst university to talk about this very thing that's great and i don't know what order this will end up being in if um your your interview will be before or after his um in in the season but that is a huge issue um and i know we've personally experienced it sending will to college and mm-hmm. and you know as parents with a child with a mental health need how do the colleges and universities help meet some of those needs Right. Of the kids. So to your point, yes, huge numbers. What is your daughter's diagnosis? Um, she has been diagnosed just with generalized anxiety. Okay. Generalized anxiety. Um, and she was at one point, one of the therapists diagnosed a PTSD early on from a something that had happened at school. And it's a kind of a long story, so I won't go into it here. Um, but um, something that had happened in middle school that I think um, – doesn't it's it's interesting because it was not a big deal but the way it was treated made it become a big deal and created I think a lot of angst okay unnecessarily so at any point in time with the generalized anxiety and PTSD was she depressed there was one time I mean there may have been little here and there like kind of being down there was one time and this again was eighth grade and this is when I would say we hit our low um it was spring break it was the first spring break we hadn't gone anywhere it ended up raining all week and she did not get out of bed Mm -hmm. I mean she barely got out of bed the entire week and normally talkative you know if she was bored she'd come down and sit with us and chit chat and you know we'd go do something together didn't go anywhere didn't do anything and just got really, really quiet. And that was, again, it was March. And that's about the time that we were like, you know, I, I can't fix this. Mm. We realized, and and I was just at my, I was just beside myself because I, I knew that we needed to do something different, but I didn't know what that was since she didn't want to talk to anyone still. And that's the point that my husband and I went and started talking to someone. Um, but that was, I would say she was depressed that week. When school started back up, it got better. But that week of just being home with nothing to do, just kind of, she just kind of went dark on us. Mm. Was she ideating suicide or anything? Um, I asked her at that time, and she said, Oh, no, I would never do that. But then several months later, I brought it back up again. She was in a better place. And I said, Have you ever, did you, you know, back, did you think of it? And she goes, Well, I don't know when I and I distinguish ideating from making a plan. She never made a plan. Okay. Um, I think it might have crossed her mind and fleetingly. Um, and that may have been something that 
helped her say, yeah, I think I should go talk to somebody. I'm not, I'm not, she never really gave me all the detail behind that, but I think there was a point during that week. It seemed to me like, you know, just looking at her, I'm like, where is her head right now? Like, I just did not know. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was a little bit scary to Mm. see her in that state because she's, she never really manifested with depression. She was kind of more anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, but I know they're connected. Um, and I know that it can make a difference which one is the primary from what I've heard, um, which I didn't really realize. And yeah. I still don't fully understand. Sure. But um, that was the only time that I remember that it was significant. Okay. I won't say that's the only time she ever felt depressed, right. which is different than like concerning depression right. symptoms. And that seemed like a bad week. And I thought this is this is morphing. This is changing into something that mm-hmm. is more. Mm. So kind of like the when that one panic attack happened, I was like, okay, this is not nor this mm-hmm. is not what I usually see here. This is more than red and flags. I th- yeah, I think a lot of it was her just feeling like I'm not feeling myself, and I have to. F- she was trying to, I think, internally probably f- fix it or mm-hmm. feeling like there was something wrong mm-hmm. with her, and she had to figure it out on her own because she didn't want to talk to anybody, didn't feel like somebody else should be doing that. It was her fault. It was her. It was on her. Like, I think she was taking on a lot mm. at that point. What was the lowest point for you in in this journey with your daughter? I think that was it. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly when she said, yeah, I'd be willing to go talk to somebody. That was my high point. I mean, I wouldn't say my mm-hmm. high point. That was when things turned Mm -hmm. and I knew at that time that this was not a short path Um, but I also knew at that point I was like she's going to be okay because Mm. she's willing to work on this and I knew that anxiety is something that honestly a majority of people experience at some point I think probably more of us than realize it may have had or experienced anxiety disorder close you know some on some level and, and it's treatable. And so that gave me, but you can't treat something. It has to come from you. you. Nobody else can fix it for you. Right. And I think for her to say, I'm willing to work on this and, and to kind of own it, it was that turning point of owning it mm-hmm. that to me made me feel like she's going to be okay. Because mm. I think once they own it and once they're willing to work on it and once they acknowledge it, um, I just knew it was going to get better then. Mm. Which is so hopeful, and it's so good to to share that hopefulness um, yeah. of your story. What are some coping mechanisms you personally use as a mom to deal with the stress of this? Because this is a lot. You've put a lot of time and effort and resources into finding things to help her along the way. So have you dealt with that? Well, in the beginning, I would say not very well. Um, in the beginning, I think I was, again, in fix-it mode. I felt like when she was at home, if she was supposed to be, if she wasn't where she was supposed to be, it was my fault. I was a bad parent, and I had to fix it. I had to get her where she was supposed to be. And I could not leave the house if she was home. I just felt like I had to keep trying to get her. And that did not help anything. Me, you know, waking her up every hour to be like, do you think you can go in? Do you think that is not helpful at all in this situation? And so I think learning to, um, you know, there's times that you do need to be around because if she needed to nap and then would wake up and needed somebody there, you didn't want no one to be there because that's not a good situation. But between my husband and I, and especially because, you know, at that point he was teaching and so his schedule was different and and I was working from home. I've been working from home for years. I was able to say, you know, we would trade off. He'd be like, I'm going to go to the gym or I'd say, you know, I'm going to go take a walk or I'm going to go to the grocery store or to Target or whatever. Getting out of the house, getting away from it, um, going to lunch with a friend, um, being able to find – this was the other piece, and I know you've addressed this a lot – is not having someone that you could talk to about it other than your immediate family or your, in my case, my husband. And I felt like sometimes I needed to talk to someone else because me talking to him added to his stress and then that didn't help things. We knew what was going on. We just needed a, re- a release from it. And so 
finding the people that you could actually have the conversations with, that you felt like you could safely have the conversations with, that you're not going to be judged. Hopefully some of them even understand and have been through this. And as you start finding those people, you realize there's a lot of people out there that if you open up to people, there's a lot more people that deal with this and don't talk about it. And I think that was the biggest thing for me is finding people. And for me, I've moved a lot. I've lived in a lot of different places. And so I had people that were not connected to, you know, it wasn't her best friend's mother or somebody yes. that I didn't, I didn't want it to impact her for me to get mm -hmm. what I needed. And so it was, it was good that I had some friends who honestly, I have three or four friends that don't live here in the area that are going through similar situations or have been through or, you know, or you know, dealing with things like this, who I could talk to and who were really helpful. And then going to counselors myself, probably not all the time, but at least having somebody that I could call if it was a bad week or we needed to, you know, talk to somebody or I could drag my husband to and say, you and I need to get on the same page again. Um, that was something. So those are some of the things. You were talking about making sure that you have people to talk to or being brave enough to open up to talk to somebody, that's exactly why I'm doing this. Yes. Because I was the same way. I didn't tell anybody for a long time because I didn't want to be judged. I felt like I was a failure. I felt like a bad mom. And I just hope that through the Just a Mom podcast, we can help just chip away at some of those, you know, stigmas and misconceptions that exist right. about mental health, mental, mental illness, mental health struggles with our kids and um, our parenting that we're not bad parents because we have a child who struggles with a mental health issue. Right. Like Dan said, no one would say, boy, I wonder what his mom did if the kid had cancer. Right. Right. And so why do we do that with mental health? I don't know. But I'm I'm hoping that we can affect that a little bit with the Just a Mom podcast. Right. What other questions have I not asked or anything that you want to make sure to convey in this episode? Um. I think we've touched on a lot of it. Um, I guess the one thing, again, it kind of goes back to this, like, normalizing things. Um, I think there's a lot of things that we can be doing that are good mental health hygiene that help everyone. And I think that um, people that maybe haven't dealt with the severity of anxiety or the severity of other mental health concerns – maybe think that's not my situation. I don't, you know, I don't have that issue. My kids don't have that issue. Um, things can happen and things can trigger. And I, and I guess the other thing is that the, we're, we're not static people. Things can improve. Um, your mental state can get a lot better and you can, you can, you know, and it can get worse. And so like people that feel like everything's going swimmingly might have something come up and maybe at some point you are going to have to face this. And so I think learning more about it, whether you think it impacts you or not, if 60% of college kids are dealing with this, that's our future right there. And so we all need to be aware of that. And we all need to understand it's not it's not a taboo issue. It's a situation that, you know, this is where we are and how can we make this better? Um, and there are ways to make it better. I think understanding it and not making it something that has to be like, oh, don't talk about that. And that a person who struggles with a mental health issue can lead a very happy, successful, productive life pursuing Absolutely whatever it is that he or she is interested in pursuing. Right. Speaking of which, tell us what the future holds for your daughter. She's a senior. She is looking at colleges. We don't know where she's going to go. She, I don't know that she even has a top choice right now. Um, she has gotten at least one acceptance already that I know of that she applied to early. So that's awesome. exciting. Just heard about that last weekend. Um, but um, honestly, is looking at going 
maybe further away. I mean, she's looking at all different areas. Um, so I don't know where she's going to land, but it's, it's exciting and it's nerve wracking as a parent. And, um, I think she, she's, um, she's going to do well where, where she lands and she'll find the right fit for her. So I feel like she's in a good place now to take on those challenges. And, and I hope that we can find a good, a good fit for her. Great. So, well, Sherry, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time uh, to be here with me and share your story and all the really valuable nuggets that you've learned over the last few years uh, with the listeners. I, I know that people are going to benefit from hearing uh, your story and, and what all you have learned over last five, six years in dealing with this yourself. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having me. And um, I think what you're doing is, is going to help a lot of people. So thank you for doing it. Thank you. That is this episode of the Just a Mom podcast. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988 I wanna see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds that keep covering up the sun. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.